I'm Christina. And I'm Wendy. And we're the, the co-founders. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just gonna so say my name, and co- you can say we're, we're the co-founders. We're the co-founders of the case for her. Okay. And then we do this. Okay. Take two. Hi, I'm Christina, and I'm Wendy, and we're co-founders of the case for her. And femtech for us is an opportunity not just for investment, but gender equality. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode, I interview Christina Lundberg and Wendy Anderson, the co-founders of The Case for Her. The Case for Her is a philanthropic investment portfolio addressing the key women's health issues of menstruation and sexual health and pleasure. They do this through grants, investments, and advocacy. Founded in 2017, the case for her brings together decades of experience working and investing in women's health and rights. This dynamic and flexible portfolio spans the globe and includes investments in product companies, tech innovations, research initiatives, and grassroots organizations. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Christina. Hey, Wendy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Great to be yeah. here. Really awesome. This is actually the first time, and I think we're in like the 90s in terms of which episode we're on. This is the first time we've had two people on the other side of the camera at the same time. Oh, we're glad we can be the first. Yeah. 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 You, take, you get us both. <laughs> It like gives me a lot of hope for like potential future of us, like actually seeing each other in real life. So I think it's really awesome. And what a background. Who are you in the office? Well, we're in my home office. Yeah. What's your last year? (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I don't think I've, I think I've seen Wendy twice in the last 12 months. So we've been uh, working apart for like, yeah, it's a bit of a reunion. Yeah. Oh, well, your background is so great. It could be virtual, honestly. (laughs) Well, we always love to kick off our interviews with learning more about you, you know, and and there's two stories here. And so I'm super excited to hear how they intertwine. But, you know, a lot of our listeners are aspiring, you know, femtech innovators or workers or investors, and there is no femtech degree, uh, you know, and so we usually have these like strange careers. Um, So can you tell us uh, where y'all are from? What did you study? Did you have careers before that? How did you meet? And then like, how did you end up here? I know it's a big question, but I, I love the back end story of it. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is Christina speaking. Maybe I'll start. Uh, my background is, it's actually in biotech. I'm a biologist. I used to work for Baxter Healthcare for a number of years in the US. Then uh, went back to school, got my MBA, fell in love with a young a handsome Swedish guy, so came to Sweden, did a bit of management consulting. And honestly, Brittany, for the last 10 years, I've really just been engaging with the things that I'm really passionate about. And uh, it's primarily two things right now. It's financing feature-length documentaries, 
which I also do with a lovely partner. And uh, doing this work together with Wendy at, at the case for her. And it's resulted in me doing a, a few other things, uh, serving on some boards of women's health, uh, social enterprises, and yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Are you in Sweden right now? Yes. Yeah. Just outside of Stockholm. Yeah. So cool. So. Okay. Wendy? Okay. My background is, um, well, I'm a Canadian and I came to Sweden for a job, but I actually started, I have a, an English literature degree from Queen's University in Kingston. And my background, I started working early on at the Toronto Stock Exchange and eventually got into the uh, uh, design and development of exchange trading systems and uh, you know, equity derivatives, futures, that kind of thing, and came to Sweden as a consultant. And that's when I met another handsome Swedish guy and ended up staying here and building a family. And then for the last, oh my goodness, I would say 10 plus years have been working in philanthropy through the family foundation that we branched out into, um, we have a, we call a good side and a green side. I get the good side, which is the humanitarian. And my husband has the green side. So he does climate change and opportunities there. Um, so we're kind of working at the intersection of uh, climate and gender. Oh my gosh, y'all are like living fantasy lives that I wish I had. Like, I guess I do have, I, I'm missing the Swedish husband. That's the part I'm missing. But otherwise. Great, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's a little bit interesting to lead in with a bit of how we met. Yeah. Yes. That's, uh, interest. Uh, I think both Wendy and I kind of started our philanthropic journey around the same time, about 10 years ago. Yeah. And. 10, 12. I felt really alone in that starting a foundation and being the first uh, person on my side of the family and also my husband's side of the family, we launched this foundation and it was really difficult to get information. It was really difficult to get support. It was impossible to find a mentor or any great role models. And so I made this crazy decision to just get out of the office. And I booked 30 meetings around Stockholm with like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and UNICEF and also these like really small kind of uh, NGOs. And I asked them all the same question. I said, what are the largest challenges facing the globe today and which ones are ripe for change? And out of those 30 conversations, I think maybe three were engaging and interesting where they attempted to answer the question. And one of uh, these individuals was at a, a larger NGO and they brought me a proposal focused on menstrual health. It was actually an $8 million proposal. And, uh, and I said, that's really interesting. I've never given a grant before in my life. Uh, I think you're, I think you're a bit off here, but I really <laughs> like you. So let's keep going. And I think I, I got it down to like $3 million. And I was thinking more like, I don't know, 10 grand or something. And I said, fine, fine. If you're going to keep bringing me this proposal, it's fine, but give me what I really need. I need co-funders. Yeah. And after a couple months, look who showed up. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't even know I was just starting my philanthropic journey then. I really didn't know that you could ask other funders to come to the table. You could make that demand. Mm -hmm. But we were also, my husband and I, um, we had been funding schools, women's health leadership and, and opportunities for quite some time. And we had been thinking about opportunities to go further upstream in the development cycle. So it was really interesting because we had kind of come to the conclusion that there had to be something else. So meeting Christina 
was really um, catalytic in my thinking at that point of where we could make change. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just sparked the start of a spectacular friendship. And I think the Canadian government, Go Canada, funded that proposal. It reminds me a lot of me and my co-founder, Dr. Julie Hakeem, because, you know, I was already in the innovation startup world and I was giving a talk at Rice University about entrepreneurship and starting a company. And she was in the, uh, as a student, like a listening in audio student um, in her scrubs. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, I'm a pediatric gynecologist and I'm trying to make this med device, but I'm, you know, I at times feel discouraged about continuing. It's so hard. Do you mind if we get coffee? And I said, sure. Yeah, let's get coffee. And she told me about how there is no such thing as a medical stint for uh, especially pediatric vaginas. And so she does surgeries, reconstructive surgeries or, you know, um, you know, cancer and kids and, uh, and there's nothing to help hold the vagina open. And so a lot of times it just collapses and like these girls have lifelong issues. She's telling me this and she's like, I just don't know if I could keep going. It's so hard. And I was like, I don't care what you have to do. Like you need to do this. Like Mm -hmm. this is really, really important. And like, you know, you know how founders just sometimes get tired and they need that outside input. Like, Oh my God. This is so important. And I was like, tell me more about like this women's health issue. I can't believe like we don't have something made for that yet. And like, it really sparked for me, like, are you kidding me? I'm out here like at the women's March. I'm out here talking about women's rights. And I didn't even know like our own healthcare system is so unequal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you guys feel like you feed off each other like that? All the time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's really, our personalities are a little bit different, yet we're still the same. It's, um, but Christina makes me take chances that are, and risks that I otherwise wouldn't have taken if I was sitting alone. Um, yes. And Wendy keeps us organized and makes sure that we pay our bills, <laughs> just so we know who's who. I don't know, is that, a, is that accurate? That, that would be pretty accurate, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> I love that blend. Um, and so you get this like initial like, menstrual health proposals, you bring in other founders, you meet Wendy. When did you form the case for her? Officially in 2017. That was, yeah. that was when we decided, because what we were doing is we were funding these things separately as our two different foundations. And we decided that we could really make most impact if we had a common name, if we called ourselves with a with something that was recognizable, because we really realized that our biggest impact could be an advocacy in bringing more funding into this space. And to do that, you needed to have a name. You needed to build a brand. You needed to be recognizable and trustworthy. So by creating the case for her, we kind of, we created that brand. I don't think you're being very honest. You don't think so? <laughs> the truth is we had to be called the case for her because everybody thought we were the same person. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's like, is this Wendy or is this Christina? Which which North American is this that we're, we're speaking to? Yeah, exactly. I mean, to be too sort of middle-aged white lady, North American yeah. menstrual funders from Stockholm, there couldn't be more than one. It so. was funny. I was sitting at someplace talking to somebody like, oh, I should introduce you to this other person who yeah, funds menstrual yeah, yeah, health. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that would be yeah. her. Well, it's <laughs> so. either me or it's either they're yeah. thinking about you. So forming the case for her was fantastic because, yeah. uh, again, to Wendy's point, we could really start moving into advocacy, really build that brand. And then the thing that really launched us 
or maybe it's worth mentioning when we when we really started partnering and kind of doing things together 50-50, we thought that it would really offload us. Yeah. But really our work's just kind of been exponentially uh increasing every year. So we started we hired a small team yeah. under the case for her and it's been fab- fabulous. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And so tell our listeners what is the case for her? What do y'all do? So we like to call it a philanthropic investment portfolio. And I don't know if anyone else uses that language, but I think it's important to be really clear that we take philanthropic kind of pioneer capital and we don't just give grant funding, but we're actually financially or, or financing agnostic. We do everything from grant funding to equity investments, convertible, short-term loans, loans, working yeah. capital loans. We don't care what kind of money it is. And we actually don't care about the geography. We're geographically agnostic too. So if you look at these two investment portfolios in menstrual health and female sexual pleasure, it's investments in... Uh, El Salvador, Nepal, Pakistan, India, East Africa. Again, we don't care because it's really a tool for the two of us. It's a learning portfolio for Mm -hmm. us to get super smart and to use our voices and to advocate for large scalable amounts of funding to go into this space. Mm -hmm. So I love that. First of all, I love it, period. And um. I feel like that blend of being a philanthropic like grant donor and an investor that's maybe, you know, negotiating term sheets on convertible notes. Um, like, I feel like usually the motivation behind those two are kind of different. Like in this, please tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like philanthropic is like, you know, I want to leave a legacy. It's not about coming back. It's about doing good. And then like term sheets are about getting your money back, right? I always am telling founders, investors are not donating you their money. They want an exit, right? Because a lot of founders are like, I'll just do this forever. Keep getting investment. And I'm like, "Mm, the profession is about getting your return. And so can you tell me about like, how do you tease that apart? Or like, where are your, why do you even do, why don't you just give grants to startups? You know, why do you also go down the investment route too? Do you mind if I weigh in? No, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's cer- certain things that are clearly for grant funding. Like Wendy and I fund some really key metrics work. Mm-hmm. You know, we find that large funders aren't going to move their funding if they can't measure what they're doing. So obviously that's not going to be an investment. But I think a really good example going in the other direction would be uh, some of the investments that we've made clearly in social enterprises into companies like B-Girl and Afropads, where you know a small investment ends up resulting in a sustainable company that's profitable, that has staying power, that's growing markets, that's delivering a necessary and high-end product to millions of girls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we do expect to get a return, but we're just talking about, you know, we're going to steal the term from Jacqueline Novogratz and Acumen, but patient capital. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it's part of building markets in a longer term, you know, change. And it's all mission driven. Um, we call them mission driven businesses. So, yeah. But I would also say you could have, you know, a company, for instance, uh, working in menstrual products where we are equity investors, but at the same time, we consider putting in grant funding, let's say for a communications campaign, mm. for research, yeah. for uh, developing materials. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Amazing. And you guys have kind of, you started with the menstrual 
you know, health. And now, you know, looking through your portfolio and your website, you are really on menstruation and sexual health. Can you tell me why y'all have landed on both of those topics? Well, menstruation, because we just saw that as a key women's health issue that was just so massively underfunded and it was nobody, funds, we, it. nobody funds it. Um, and yet it's really important as a, as a key stepping stone to so many other things later in a, in a menstruator's life. Like you just kind of know that it goes into empowerment, it goes into mobility and it goes into education and educate and, you know, gender employment, equality, and gender equality. So it's health. kind of widespread. And then the more we started learning from the menstrual portfolio, we could understand the benefits of also including uh, sexual empowerment and sexual pleasure as an opportunity, because that's also equally tied into all of those same things. And we're already trying to get menstruation into sexual reproductive health education agendas. And that's where sexual uh, health and wellness and pleasure need to go as well. Well, and I mean, we might look like two super nice, friendly philanthropists, which we are, but we're also a bit of badass. And the fact is, because it's our money, we don't have to really answer to anyone else, <laughs> yeah. which means that Wendy and I can be super cutting edge, make super innovative investments. We can be fast, flexible, risk tolerant. And there aren't that many people that can fund in that space. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of funding that needs to go into massively underfunded key women's health issues that are highly stigmatized at a global level. And it's funny, once we get into these rooms, like you can talk to somebody at some of these NGOs or the bilaterals and say, oh, I wish we could have that question or that conversation. I wish we could be you know, raising this up. So we kind of see ourselves as breaking it open so that it becomes more mainstream. Yeah. Um, Providing evidence. Yeah. that it is impactful and important to de-risking situations so that exactly. other organizations can walk in afterwards and take it further. Um, so you guys and I'd, are love to, I'd love to just give an example if that's okay. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we of course get more questions about the sexual pleasure, female sexual yeah. pleasure portfolio. And of course it's meant to be provocative, right? Women's pleasure has to be squarely put in the in the health arena, like men's has been for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think just to kind of set that scene for the kinds of questions that Wendy and I would be asking, you know, we're curious whether by taking a pleasure-based approach, let's say in sex ed for adolescents, is it possible that by taking a pleasure-based approach and actually telling adolescents what they want to know, because they're having sex because it's pleasurable. Mm -hmm. So tell them what they want to know. And then could it be that they actually remember the things that they need to know more because they're listening and taking it in a different level? Mm -hmm. And could we uh, actually measure a greater uptake of goods and services mm -hmm. at local clinics like contraceptives and HIV self-testing? And I think the answer is yes, but we've got to push it and get that evidence. Are you referring to uh, sex ed in which countries? Well, global, any country, any country. <laughs> Any, any place where there are adolescents. Yeah, we did a pilot um, together with Y Labs in El Salvador, but our hope is that the work out of that can be pulled anywhere, really. Yeah, because I know all different countries and cultures are starting at different baselines of sex ed, right? So I lived in France for a year as a teenager, and one of the houses I lived in, family had a nine year old boy, and he had this little book on like, what is puberty? And it had like, 
penises in it. And I was like, oh my God, like as a 17 year old girl, like reading it my, for myself, like, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Do tell. And so like, we have French, we have Texas, uh, we have, you know, I don't know where Sweden's at on the sex ed spectrum, but for you, it's, it's more about, it doesn't, whatever school system kind of allows you to have influence. You're not like, do you have priorities in terms of where you're going to go first? No. Yeah. I think, I think that evidence is, is globally um, relevant. Mm-hmm. And of course I'm American. And when I think that is it, maybe I'm off by one or two, but if it's only 13 States in the United States that require comprehensive sex ed, that's based in facts. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. So, yep. I mean, mm-hmm. don't have to look very far. No. Um, can you tell us about some of your portfolio, you know, whether they be, you know, grant recipients or investments? I, I just want to hear some of the names of some of the, you know, programs you've supported. Well, do you want to start with, um, well, we have the businesses. We have well, menstruation or pleasure. Where should we start? Menstruation. <laughs> start with the menstruation. Might have to call up our website to remember. No, come on. (laughs) Well, if we talk about femtech, because I mean that's what we're here to discuss. Clue, the menstrual app, or one of the largest global women's health apps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Then some social enterprises. We have B Girl that does period panties, Afropods, cloth reusable menstrual pads. Uh, Of course, the grant funding for metrics. Yeah, we have a a project actually with UNICEF, um, Aki, which is a open source. It's not if I like a clue, but it's an open source app for adolescents um, that's available in two versions, a white, white label and MOU version. And the idea is to provide um, an encyclopedia based information anywhere, but with the fun and accessible and uh, globally available. Um, what else do we have? Then we had a, a large project and partnership with a big NGO called PSI, Population Services International. There's a fabulous collective there called Maverick Collective that's been around for about five years. And it's a group of about 25 women that commit to funding a women's health project for three years. And so we did a really edgy one. We did one of PSI's first ever menstrual health projects in Nepal. Or Even though it was women's health, it was the first menstrual one. Yeah. Mm. Uh, which is different now they've they've been been really mainstream but uh but that we were really pushing the envelope funding such a large menstrual health project and applying human-centered design so hcd Mm -hmm. which of course uh a lot of the listeners uh, probably use uh, for product development in the health tech space we've invested in sustain Sustain, that's a, an American company mm-hmm. delivering. We loved that because they sort of crossed that aisle, menstrual products and sexual health products, everything from pads and tampons and lubes. And I think one of the healthiest condoms designed for the vagina. Mm-hmm. We do some really offbeat things as well. Um, DNAD is one of those things that we do that's um, a little bit different. It's DNAD is a design and art direction competition that's held every year. Um, for the last few years, we've supported a brief that goes up, and the briefs are really interesting. The first year we did um, uh, breaking global menstrual stigma in yeah. partnership with McKinsey Design. They yeah. they did some great work with us on that Nepal project. Yeah, and then the next year we did sexual pleasure, and we partnered with uh, Teen Vogue last year. And this year we're partnering with Refinery Twenty Nine and doing uh, menopause. 
These are big names. They're big wow. names. Yeah. And the projects are really exciting because it's a really good way of changing uh, social behavior and introducing new concepts into a design, the design community who will yeah. take these things throughout their creative careers and move them forward. Or mainstreaming, also, yeah. mainstreaming those issues. And I think it's probably the most scalable thing in our portfolio, although also the most fun. These briefs get downloaded. I think we've probably had over 70,000 downloads of our briefs in wow. over 120 countries now. So and cool. uh, as you know, because I think you came to our demo day, actually, for the- Yeah, we, 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 yeah. we shared some of your briefs for our community and stuff, yes. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Um. Speaking of Teen Vogue and Refinery29, do you ever get into conversations with them about like, how can we change policy so that we can say vagina in, you know, in articles and stuff? Do, do you ever, y'all ever get into conversations like that or have opinions on it? Absolutely. We have a lot of opinions about that. And we do most of the talking through this incredible new organization called the Center for Intimacy Justice, which is by Jackie Rotman and precisely uh, answering these questions that, that you're asking and trying to figure out how to really change the situation. And, you know, I think one of my favorite stories to really explain the challenges, which, which you're very mm -hmm. aware of, are the story, the story of the founder, Polly Rodriguez of Unbound, mm -hmm. kind of the struggles that she went through well, which led to her starting that company and then figuring out how to do it in this context where as a female entrepreneur starting a sexual wellness company could not open a bank account, could not advertise, could not do transactions yeah. and payments and kind of just really, I think, it, I think it's an incredible story kind of outlining the issues. And uh, Jackie Rotman at the Center for Intimacy Justice really believes that the place to start is it's not necessarily laws and that kind of like hmm. legal policy. Hmm. It's actually internal corporate policy, corporate policies uh -huh. on doing business. So it's going to take changing the minds of the, the leadership mm -hmm. on on that. Yeah. That was something I had always wondered was like, is the censoring of, you know, using actual red liquid on a, you know, pad commercial, like, is that a law on like the Congress, like government level, or is that an internal, like someone is uncomfortable at the production place, you know, yeah, and like, internal. it's internal, it's, internal. It's, it's some kind of internally enforced moral code yeah. where somebody decided that other people would be uncomfortable. Uh, the vice clauses yeah. and women's health tends to in these areas yeah. where we fund Tends to falls under the vice clause. Yeah. Well, speaking of vice, so can you tell us some about your sexual health? It's kind of a um, newer one, right? You've been doing menstruation longer. So tell, tell me about some of the projects you're excited about in your sexual health portfolio. Well, we absolutely invested in Unbound with Polly Rodriguez. I think <laughs> um, we read a newsletter actually that was put out by the helm in New York. It's a, an investment fund funding only female led female founded uh, companies. And they put out a newsletter focused just on pleasure. Yeah. 
and Polly was profiled in there. And I think it just set us, set us spinning. Mm-hmm. So we have that. And then of course, sustain, which we already mentioned. We do a lot of the, grant funding to the pleasure project. Well, not a lot of grant funding, but they are a recipient of some grant funding because they do spectacular work in um, defining pleasure and then using the evidence based in pleasure to see that it tracking towards uh, improved sexual reproductive health outcomes further down the line. And they're really experts that are called across the field. Um, and we will be working with together with them in other projects. Um, we try to what we do is try to network our projects together when we can um, so that they we get maximum benefit out of the investments or the grants that we're making. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the smart thing to do. And what I love about Femtech is that we're so collaborative. Um, I've worked in a bunch of different industries and I've never found an industry that is like, hey, hey, everybody, I'm really good at this. Like, I need that. Can we trade? Like, you know, like, what are you working on? What am I working on? And, and we all know, like, the bigger purpose here is women's health. It's, you know, that's the real purpose here, why we're here. I think one of the, I just have to bring up something else that I know that we're both passionate about. One of our other investments was actually with vulvodynia and vaginismus. Yeah. And I, I, for instance, listened to your session with High Ivy, Mm-hmm. Um, we've also invested uh, in a company that's addressing vaginismus called mm-hmm. Aquafit. That's definitely in the portfolio. Yes, I saw the their website. Very interesting. Um, like a, you know, I feel like there's some paradigms about how we treat stuff, <laughs> and then I see like the Aquafit, and I'm like, oh yeah, like let's think outside the box on solutions. Yeah, it's kind of how I felt about them. So, and what about Reformation Ventures? Oh, we've made an investment, an early investment in a new VC fund Mm -hmm. uh, on the West Coast in the U.S. Actually, it's a partnership with with, uh, Healthy Pleasures Group in Mm -hmm. London. We've put in some initial capital and it's been placed in DAME. Mm -hmm. DAME, amazing. Wow, so you're LPs in funds as well. I love Carly from Reformation. She's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, so- You are making all the impact. You're making all the impact. If you have listened to even just five of our nearly 100 episodes, uh, you'll hear that the last question is, what do we need more of in order for Femtech to be successful? And literally like eight times out of 10, everyone says money. And so you guys are actually doing it. And like, that's the impact that is going to change women's lives, save women's lives, improve their lives. And as we say at Femtech Focus, women's health is everyone's health. And so um, as we improve women's health, literally every gender's health will improve. Every economy will improve, right? Are you of the same opinion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. And I think Wendy and I are continuing to get more bold and brave. Mm -hmm. And I had an incredible conversation with a founder that I know you know two days ago, uh, Rupan Gill at Vitala. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew my mind because I think that Wendy and I are, you know, being pretty brave. But when I thought about, okay, what's the what's the next most highly stigmatized? What's maybe the most stigmatized women's mm-hmm. health issue of all? And all of a sudden, I think we need more abortion mm-hmm. uh, companies, if if we can say it like that. So I think self care, yeah. self administered. Yeah. I think what she's doing is incredible. And I would love to see more for-profit companies and technologies and ideas in that space. 100%. Talk about. 
per cent. I love that because I've, you know, been tending femtech stuff for about two years now. And there was a point uh, last summer, I think, where I finally was like, I have not seen one panel, one event, one company, one episode about abortion. And it's like, if one in four women in the world have one, we just have the panel on it, y'all. Like, and so yep. then we got Rupan on, and you know, I've been very open on many episodes about my experience of having an abortion, and you know, and people are like, "Wow, thanks for being so vulnerable." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm the one in, I'm one in four. Like, you know, so unless we talk about it, like, it's absolutely a need, hundred percent. Yeah, and I think you know, especially having gone through a bit of COVID. <laughs> this past year and it's given us an opportunity to really reflect and this idea of putting women's health in their own hands when possible especially a lot of the issues that we're working on self-care is really an option it's Mm -hmm. about information and education and tools um let's enable more of that what are some of the future goals for the case for her I always joke that we want to put ourselves out of business. Um, you know, our goal is to get more funding into this space to the point where yeah. our funding is no longer necessary. Yeah. So that's how I see us. Same for you, Christina. I have a few good years left. Maybe we can get out of <laughs> menstruation and go into one of these other like edgy areas. Yeah, I would love to do more in the menopause space. Yeah. We've got to figure we've got to figure out how to do that. Um yeah, not not ready to start to start shutting down. We got to get more funding and more energy into the space. Hundred percent. Well, that actually leads really well into my next question, which is: we have a lot of aspiring femtech founders. Um, I think it's like forty percent of our listeners are actually university and graduate students, which I think is super cool. That like they want to work in the space. Um, what is an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? Well, I think we just covered a really big one. Yeah, yeah. I so <laughs> I was like, oh, I think we're trickling into it. <laughs> I think abortion and, and menopause. I, I think I read an yeah. article just the other day. It was published by a UK-based organization that said that um, I think there was 14 million working days lost every year to menopausal women in the UK. That's and crazy. that itself was a massive economic opportunity, not to mention the number of women that are going from doctor to doctor and a diverse number of symptoms, not being able to figure out what actually is going in their bodies. So if that could, you know, for any uh, country that has a uh, healthcare system included, that's a massive savings right there. Mm-hmm. So I think- um, it's, and we're we're not done with menstrual health and sexual even, pleasure. No. I mean, we're just getting started. We need a lot more innovating in all of these. I, any any highly stigmatized women's health issue, I think yeah. you've got a market and opportunity. It hasn't been funded. And there's two sides. There's you know there's the, the product side, but then there's the social behavior change um, mm-hmm. side, and those are marketable opportunities. Yeah. Let's mainstream this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. For menopause, it's just just a question I have for you on your opinion. Um, I've heard that it's been hard for menopause companies to be really successful right now because there is a lack of tools in order to like really understand or track menopause. And what we realize is that like, oh, we actually need a lot more R&D before we can like even create products for it. Do you see that too or hear people talking about that? 
It's absolutely yeah. true. I, I had a long conversation with someone earlier this week about that that's addressing menopause in the U.S. And she said there's only ever been two longitudinal studies that have done including women mm-hmm. as young as 35. We know, we maybe we know a bit about menopause after a woman's not having a period anymore. Yeah. That has to stop being the definition of menopause. Mm-hmm. There's this other thing, the perimenopause, which yeah. lasts for like 10 or 15 years called the menopause transition. And we don't know anything about that. There absolutely needs to be research and studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it wise then for us? And I'm asking for myself. I'm just asking you like a friend here. Like, is it wise for us to encourage people to start menopause companies if like the data doesn't exist for them to like build things on? What do you guys think? I guess it depends at what stage. I mean, you can always identify. It depends on what need you're trying to satisfy. You know, if you're if your company is based mm-hmm. around, you know, dealing with this experience of sweats, right? Then you can, you know, create a product around that or deal with that or measure it somehow. If your idea is dealing with the the brain fog kind of thing, then maybe you deal with an app that has to do with um, tracking these episodes and trying mm-hmm. to tie them to other things. If you want to do temperature fluctuations, you can tie it to, you know, um, you know, rings and devices and things that you have. So it's, um, I think it depends because menopause is so widespread, uh, the symptoms of perimenopause are, if you picked up on sections of those, then you could still, um, you know, you could actually add to the evidence base, which is, you know, what Clue was yeah. doing with the, the work that they're, you know, it's not just an app, it's one of the world's largest data collection opportunities yeah. for menstruation. So if you start building something for menopause, it also contributes to knowledge, then you could be, you know, doing two things at once. 100%. I think that uh, in the entrepreneurship innovation world, we are still finding marketplaces and like comprehensive big things like to be the sexy thing to go after. Like we'll just solve all the problems all under one app or one website (laughs) or whatever. Right. And I feel like sometimes that is, it's just such a big bite to bite, you know, like that is just so huge. And if menopause lacks research in terms of the whole marketplace, that is the experience of peri menopause, post menopause, right? Maybe anyone going for the marketplace thing is going to have a bigger trouble. And maybe we need to get more successes that are just targeting a hot flashes or just targeting, you know, not sleeping well or whatever. And, and then maybe we can combine them later. Yeah. I'm just brainstorming with you. I wish well, we had a race board. <laughs> with, a, with a focus on identification and tracking and mm-hmm. information. I mean, yeah. all of these areas that we're working that we've discussed in this in this past uh, hour, it's it's all about education, right? It's all rooted in information. I think what happens with menopause in particular is you don't realize it until after the fact. Like, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. Right? 10 years ago. That. You want to start doing it so you're informed <laughs> prior to experiencing these things so that you, you walk into it with your eyes open and you have a completely different experience about it yeah. uh, as well as having a tool set that's available to you. Well, hopefully the first conversation that you have about menopause doesn't have to be when you get it. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, that's yeah. issue. It's when you're going for a walk with a girlfriend and you're saying, oh, I've been so down lately. Or, you know, and then she's like, oh yeah, well, have you considered and like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is that manual, that chapter of our manual of how women's bodies works. Like somebody just was like, oh, no, nah, we'll just leave that out. <laughs> Crazy. 
Um, our last question for you, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, and we'll see what your answer is, but what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Other than money. Other than money? Other than, <laughs> you can say money, but yeah, usually the answer people give is money. Hmm. It needs it all. It needs it all. I'm going to say rich, but that's, you know, we've touched on that. We know it needs money. Um, uh, It needs recognition, right? It needs an opportunity. And again, it goes back to finance, realizing that these issues are are worthy of being looked at because this is a population that's worthy of equality. Um, We need a few very successful companies and exits, right? To just establish this in a language that the money understands would be my... It's really, you know, this is all about women's equality. And it's so frustrating that we need to frame it as an an economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's... that's, That's it the is. language that a lot yeah. of people speak in, right? Yeah. So my experience is that when I started to get into femtech, I was like, man, if we only had an exit. If we only had an exit. And then I started femtech focus and I was like, oh, wait, there's an exit. That's an exit. Interviewed you. You had an exit. So I started to make this Google sheet. I have way too okay. many, you know, but up to now I have a Google sheet of our femtech exits and we're up to about 36. Wow. Then, yeah. And of the 36, we have about five that are over a billion dollars. No way. Uh-huh. And so we actually are going to be publishing this database pretty soon. And uh, actually at our March 22nd summit, I will be doing a, the Femtech Landscape. It's a talk I love to give, but I'll be actually presenting this data. Right. But my question is, why the hell has nobody else ever done this? And I have this amazing intern who's actually calculating like average years of, you know, till exit, average return on investment. Like we're going to be like publishing these graphs and stuff, which is like super basic math, you know, but it's like nobody made the sheet. <laughs> nobody made the list. Just like the Femtech database, PitchBook and Crunchbase don't have that as a tag. And so when I try to look, say how many femtech companies there are, I don't know. So I start Google Sheet. We're up to like 750 femtech companies in that sheet, you know? That's really So what cool. can we do? <laughs> what yeah. can Wendy and Christina in the case for her do to contribute to changing changing the scene? Um, well, I'll, I guess I'll say it on the podcast. We are 501c3 nonprofit. So I guess like, <laughs> we can work together uh, on that. Um, but also like just sharing it too, because, you know, one of the things is going to be like, um, you know, we are trying and I'll share this on the podcast, you know, uh, this, we are new, right? I started Femtech Focus one year ago. We're currently in February, 2021. I started it one year ago. And so what I find is that I talk to really big pharmaceutical companies, really big corporations that are like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Just exist for at like at least two more years. And then we'll partner with you because then it'll be like a safer bet for us, which I can totally appreciate. And at the same time, I'm like, I won't be here in two years, though, if you don't support me now. Right. And so um, do you uh, I guess (laughs) now I'm turning this into a mentor session. But like that's been my experience so far of like they say, prove yourself and stay around a while because they only have so much PR to give out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how can you guys help? Tell these people that we are the real deal, you know, listeners. If you work at Deloitte, if you work at Johnson Johnson, if you work at anywhere that has any budget. <laughs> I'm tech focus. It's the real deal. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> just bring it up in all the meetings. Okay, y'all just let them know we're really real. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been seriously so much fun. Do you have any parting words for our listeners on the case for her and, um, you know, anything, anything like your, what is the legacy, your final message? What's the thing you want to give out to everyone? Well, we know we have an idea who the audience is. So I would just say, thank you for doing what you're doing. Audience keep doing what you're doing. It's important work and it's making a difference. And we're going to keep doing what we do. Yeah. Thank you for listening to my interview with Christina Lundberg and Wendy Anderson, the co-founders of The Case for Her. This is an exceptional organization, and they are truly making a difference in women's health. So on behalf of all of Femtech, thank you, ladies. Already Fem fans, please join our Femtech Focus virtual community and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. In our virtual community, you can become a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month, and that gives you access to a library of our recorded Femtech content and free tickets to our Femtech Fundamentals, which is a bi-weekly workshop for founders to learn how to build, launch, and succeed. Femtech Focus also has Monday night podcast listening parties, a Femtech book club, and weekly office hours on Clubhouse. There's a lot going on, so definitely become a member and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. While there, consider becoming a monthly donor. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.